Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if CBS wants to do a series about Mott the Barber foiling intergalactic terrorists and doling out sweet quaffs, they've got my subscription money. I'm joined in this episode by Ryan Britt. Ryan writes both fiction and nonfiction and is the author of Luke Skywalker Can't Read and Other Geeky Truths. He's also a contributor for outlets such as Vice, Tor.com, Inverse, and StarTrek.com, and he's the news and entertainment editor for Fatherly.com, a news and parenting advice site for dads. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think you got all of the places. I also write for <laughs> Denim Geek. Yes. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, yeah, Star Trek all the time. Um, how's it going? It's going great. And you have the permission to come aboard. It's been granted. Fantastic. Today we'll be talking about Starship Mine, the 18th episode of the sixth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek, as first conceived by Gene Roddenberry, was a one-hour dramatic television series designed to provide sci-fi thrills while moralizing on the social issues of the day, all on a budget that would make a Ferengi's lobes twitch. But as the series and the franchise went on, there were only so many tense standoffs, so many critiques of social ills, and so many colors of aliens the show could depict before the series would have to evolve past its initial pitch of steely-eyed American spacemen bringing capitalism to the stars. Writers like Gene Kuhn and David Gerald attempted to inject comedy into the relative graveness of the original series, and many subsequent Trek writers have taken glee in popping the bubble of ostentatiousness that sometimes characterizes life in the Federation. Because after all, there's no point in contacting new life and new civilizations if you're just going to bum everybody out. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Ryan, it's great to have you here. And I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Great question. I think that it's a, it's a slightly boring answer, which is just <laughs> that it was already in my house. There was never a question of sure. a time when it didn't exist. Sure. Um, I joke about this in my first book and... Is that when I was a kid, I was born in 1981, so I was the annoying like six-year-old who was already suspicious of the next generation because my dad was an original series fan. Yeah, so yeah. I would say that my er that said, my earliest memories are probably of the next generation and specifically of LeVar Burton. Yeah, um, because that was like sort of my that was why I was excited to watch the series. So I think that. Um, that's the that's the beginning, uh, and then <laughs> then the rest is sort of like define my personal and professional life in all sorts of ways. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, uh, next generation. But I was an original series fan as a kid, um, and even as the next generation was on, I like had this weird allegiance to the original series. I did. I did in the same way, and and for the same reasons. And as soon as I saw, I remember vaguely seeing commercials for the upcoming Star Trek show, you know, in the late '80s, and knowing that the Reading Rainbow guy was on it. And I just think that was a really great casting choice, not just because of Lavar Burton's talent, but also just having a built-in child audience and then a built-in adult one as well, with him, of course, uh, being in Roots. So that was a kind of a coup, I think, for the early show. Yeah, I don't know if you saw there was a. Um there was an interview with Michael Shabone, um, who was, you know, the showrunner and writer of Star Trek Picard, and of course a brilliant uh, novelist. And he was had a Rolling Stone interview where he was talking about talking to Rick Berman, you know, the producer of Next Generation and all the mm -hmm. Trek shows, you know, through Enterprise, and asking about, oh, well, was it a big coup to get Patrick Stewart? And Berman told him, no, you know, the big stars were LeVar Burton 
and Will Wheaton, who had been in Stand By Me. Right. Yeah. You know, so yeah, like LeVar Burton. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you forget LeVar, LeVar Burton is billed third. Yeah. You know, in TNG, like he's he's a major. But yeah, that was why I think that that yeah, as a kid, that was why I, why I watched. Yeah. He was my favorite character as a kid. Yeah, I probably mine too, actually. Yeah, he was the first action figure I got. Those little Galoob. Oh yeah, action figures. Uh, Jordy was the first one yeah. I had. <laughs> uh, this is a, a Star Trek podcast, obviously, but sometimes we're afforded the chance to cross the streams a little and talk about the other Star franchise. And you wrote a collection of essays about pop culture called "Luke Skywalker Can't Read," which. My first reaction to that is, I guess he won't miss those Jedi texts that Ray stole all that much. But clearly, you've been having deep thoughts about nerdy topics and universes for a long time. Yeah, well, I mean, the that book is full of essays about uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, and a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, the title of the book is taken from the essay, Luke Skywalker Can't Read, which is a slightly tongue-in-cheek look at literacy in Star Wars, but does talk at length about literacy in star trek um as a point of comparison yeah um you know there being uh, an absence of of books in star wars and a and a, uh, and a lot of them in in star trek and you know in my defense that book was written in 2014 and published in 2015 way before the last jedi came out yes uh, that said is <laughs> i did interview that said is i did interview ryan johnson in 2017 on the day the last jedi came out and directly asked him about the books and why, because L George Lucas had never wanted a paper universe for yeah. Star Wars. And, yeah. and Johnson said that he needed something that represented something really old. But he did cop to the idea that that uh, there's not a good um, media system in Star Wars and that, uh, you know, at the end of that film, um, I asked, like, how did the news spread of Luke on, you know, uh, the planet Crate? <laughs> you know how did that news spread yeah from you know like those kids are telling the story he's like no no it's definitely a game of telephone it's definitely the oral tradition yeah and i would like to point out that yoda does make a joke in the uh, uh movie that that luke uh is not a not a great reader you know page turners they are not <laughs> uh, yeah. but yeah i mean the overall point of that essay was not necessarily that luke was illiterate um but that the the use of uh, media and uh, the written word in specific in Star Wars and journalism is just completely absent. Yeah. And that that um, that fact uh, explains a lot of um, what's wrong with that culture. Yes. And why it's so and the reverse being that Star Trek people are very literate and very interested in books um, and reading. And that that is a um, the people's love of literature in Star Trek actually kind of defines that franchise in a way that is not true and star wars is sort of dystopic right like it's a dysfunctional government right yeah. it's always people are always fighting for their rights and that's probably because they don't know as much because they're disenfranchised by a lack of um information where star trek everybody's really well read and yes. Kirk's reading dickens while he's on the way to um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know uh you know to inspect the enterprise you know so i i just think that there's like a the love of books um, is just such a huge part of Star Trek that is um, it's just integral to why it's popular. So an essay in that in my first book is about that. So in, in, a, in a sense, it's not just an essay about Star Wars. It's yeah. an essay about Star Trek as yeah. well. There's a wealth of information in the Star Trek universe, and everyone has easy access to it, which is in stark contrast, like you mentioned, to 
Star Wars, where you have to, and I know that Star Wars is escapist, but it's so concerned with popular movements and uh, governments and, you know, civics. And yeah, how does that information propagate? Although I'd say that Star Trek some lacks sometimes as well. I think it's great that everybody has a library card, but you never see really the mass media depicted. Um, you only touch on journalism when Jake decides he wants to be a journalist. And it isn't until the first episode of Picard that we actually see news. You know what I mean? Like we see this. Uh, oh, no. You had those reporters and generations on the oh, Enterprise. Oh, that's true. TV yes. Yes. You get interviewing a, Kirk yes, trying a, to get sound by a satirical depiction of uh, reporters. Yeah. <laughs> but, in I, generations. I, but don't you get the sense? That, I mean, I agree with you that there's obviously gaps here. Like, who, like, Neil, like, uh, you know, um, uh, the the doctor's publisher in the Voyager episode yes, author, which like, is weirdly predatory, yeah, really confusing. Like how how, how do people buy holographic novels? Right. How does that publisher stay in business? Um, but I mean, I think that like that said is I think that with media in Star Trek, particularly with Picard, I always I get the sense that like physical books, that there is something that that's a niche market right in the twenty fourth century. Yeah, like that that that. The people at Picard's house or Rafi watched the news interview on space TV or whatever yeah. it was, like, <laughs> yeah. like Federation News Network or whatever it was. FNN. They watch it, but that that is inherently an antiquated form of media consumption. Yeah. Um, and that, like, I thought that the, um, what do you call it, the Children of Mars episode did a pretty good job right. of that because they showed the images just sort of coming in sort of uncontrollably. Right, right. Uh, kind of out of context. I talked to the director of that episode um, right before it aired. Um, I don't have his name in front of me, which makes me feel terrible. I will look it up while we're talking. Um, but he pointed out that they were really struggling with how to depict that because they were sort of like, well, how would it be? Would it just be numbers coming in? Would it be holographic? Would it be on screens? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so that there was a um, there was a question about they were concerned about how to depict media in the 24th century even recently in Children of Mars. Because, yeah, it, it always comes across a little dated, right? Yeah, and it's something to you have to project what society and technology and all these things are going to be like in the future. And to try to take on what news and, and news media would be like is that's just a whole... I mean, I'd love to see a show about like a, the newsroom type show set in the Federation where you've got like this journalist who's trying to figure things out. But that's got to be such a weird thing to conceptualize and just for like a 10-minute short trek as well. So it's probably safe to just stick to chirons and footage and, and that sort of thing. People would consume uh, the news in a similar way in the future. Right. The director's name of that episode was Mark Pellington. Sorry, Pellington. I just I wanted to remember that because he was a really cool guy to talk to about directing that episode. Sure. But yeah, I mean, it is just like, yeah, I mean, you're right. Is that like <laughs> depicting it is always going to be weird. I know my workaround in my head is that it's a is that it's still a niche it's a niche market that people don't, most like, people don't consume Like people reading the newspaper now, <laughs> like people, there's a... Right, right. That would, that would be a good analogy. Yeah. But like, I think that like what, and that Star Trek is, yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting job in Star Trek would be a science fiction novelist. Yeah. Right. That to me is the most interesting job. Like who are like, because <laughs> yeah. like Jordy becomes a novelist, right? In like the fake future. And then we right. know Jake's a novelist. Yeah. You know, but um. Yeah, I mean, at least there are journalists and novelists in the Star Trek future. I guess oh, that's that what I what I what I what I will say. Yeah. At least it exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The kind of questions that you explore in uh, Luke Skywalker seem like the kind of arguments that you get into, you know, on the bus ride home from a quiz bowl tournament, you know, when you're in junior high. And I guess by you, I, I mean specifically me, like questions like why why don't Spider-Man's gloves stick to his hands, you know, or how can uh, Neo control machines outside of the Matrix? Or why is everybody in the Star Wars galaxy just cool with having sentient robot slaves? I think that talking about these things in a fun way is... Um, you know, why I, why science fiction and Star Trek in specific didn't stay in my childhood. Um, I'm working on a new book now um, that I'm hoping to sell this year and have come out in 2022. Uh, working title is Spock Lives, um, mm-hmm. how the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I, I keep touching on in it is how talking about Star Trek in specific isn't just about talking about childhood escapism. Whereas a lot of big sci-fi fantasy properties is always through that lens of this makes me feel like a kid again. Yeah. But with Star Trek, that's not always true because sometimes it's like it makes you feel like an adult again, right? Like that's the thing that I kept coming back to in writing the new book is that there are things about it that it's funny to me now that like what I liked about the next generation as a child is very different than what I like now. Yeah, right. Um, and um, and so that that's just something that that is that's fun to think about. So yeah, I mean, the, the kinds of like nerdy debates that I enjoy, I always feel like have that aren't just fan theories. I, I like write a lot of fan theories. I do that for a living. It's fun. I love doing that. Um, but the ones that really stick with me are like when there's an extra, when there's an extra layer to it, that means something beyond just, um, the thing inside of the canon. Yeah. So like, I don't know, like an example of that would be like, um, uh, uniform canon in Discovery versus the Cage, right? <laughs> like, right. so like, how do you work that out, right? Yeah. Like, well, the, Q, the episode Q and A, Spock meets number one for the first time, but he's wearing the Discovery era TOS uniforms and not the those goofy turtlenecks from the Cage. Right? How do we reconcile that? Well, in theory, the in canon, the only footage we've seen of those turtleneck uniforms come from a telepathic projection from the Telosans, right? right yeah. So in theory, we could retroactively just say that those uniforms are part of a telepathic reconstruction, which is why none of it makes any sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, don't, they just wear robes I, all the time. They don't get pullovers. Right. As far as I know, this is my... Right. What do they know about clothes? We saw what <laughs> Vina would wear. Um, yeah. So their telepathic reconstruction of the Enterprise retroactively becomes uh, fake uniforms that never existed. Yeah. What I like about this fan theory, which as far as I know is unique to me, is that it it's like fun because it explains clothes but it also then makes you think harder about the telepathic reconstructions that the Telosans created mm. which actually is a roundabout way that we can start talking about starship mine because star trek loves to talk about horses but never depict real horses which is true in the cage yeah. because captain pike meets telepathic horses but also true of all the horses that picard rides in the next generation, they're either holographic or fake. Right. In Starship Mine, he was going to get to ride a real horse, but he didn't get to. Right. He had to fight terrorists. Right. And he's riding a holographic horse in Pen Pals. Um, horse in Pen Pals. Fake horse in the, the Robin Hood episode. Yeah. <laughs> in Generations. And, and of course, super fake horses in the Nexus. Yeah. In Star Trek Generations. Yeah, that's interesting. 
And then, yeah, the Pike doesn't have real horses in the cage. Like, there's all sorts of fake horses. <laughs> I think they're probably the only real horses we see are Star Trek V, maybe, on Nimbus 3. Yeah, and they're not even, like, and what is, where did, were the, are those even real? Like, are, the, are those, not, those aren't Earth horses, Yeah, right? they're those, not Palominos, yeah. <laughs> right, they're like Nimbus 3. Well, maybe they are. If they were, Nimbus 3 probably didn't have any indigenous. It seems like Nimbus 3 didn't have an indigenous Yeah, population. it seemed like a pretty crappy planet. <laughs> Well, just one more thing before we get into Starship Mine. Uh, you're currently teaching creative writing classes for the Main Writers and Publishers Alliance, and I'm sure that COVID-19 has impacted that uh, significantly. Yeah, I mean, I so as a creative writing teacher, I've taught creative nonfiction for about nine years. Um, I started doing that in New York um, when I lived in New York for about 15 years, and um, in Maine, I've lived here for about two years. I moved my family here a little bit ago in 2018. Um, I was still teaching online uh, New York classes in 2018 and 2019. So with COVID-19, the creative writing classes actually just went online. Yeah. Main Writers and Publishers Alliance. So sure. it wasn't it wasn't ideal, but it wasn't terrible. Yeah. Uh, so it impacted it, but it, but the class was able to go on. That's good. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. I mean, as in terms of what you and I do, I find I find myself very lucky that. Um, Everything, whether it was teaching or doing interviews for um, the different Star Trek shows or writing articles uh, for uh, uh, Fatherly or writing uh, pieces for Den of Geek and Sci-Fi Wire um, and Inverse, um, you know, my work has been, um, I'm lucky it's not been affected that much because everything is online. Yeah, that's how we consume it. Yeah. Well, why did you choose the specific episode Starship Mind to discuss today? Well, because I don't. It, well, for one thing is that I'm I, I'm buddies with Morgan Gendel, yeah. who wrote the episode, who is more more famous for having written the Inner Light yeah. um, episode of the Next Generation, and so I think it's interesting because it's the other episode that Morgan wrote for the Next Generation, and it's nothing like the Inner Light. But it is a Picard-centric episode yeah. that is, um, you know, was was pitched as Die Hard in, in space, Die Hard <laughs> yeah. on the Enterprise. That's how Morgan pitched it to the TNG room, writers' room in the '90s. So I find that um, to be compelling. Yeah. It also just is like a it's a weird episode because it's got a comedy plot yeah. and it's got an action plot. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And <laughs> it has a lot of it has a weird confluence of many things that um exist in other parts of the franchise um including guest actors but also just like the idea of um you know you opened up the show talking about like the idealism of star trek or whatever the you know like sort of like conflict versus like no conflict and there's a great scene early in the episode where Picard has like a laser scalpel that he's pointing at uh, Tim Russ's character, mm-hmm. who is a, a, one of the sort of mercenaries who's stealing the trilithium. And uh, Tim Russ's character is like, you know, you're Starfleet, you won't kill me. And Picard's like, are you sure? <laughs> um, and it's interesting because Picard doesn't kill him. Yeah. But then he kills other people later. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> he, he allows them to be killed. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like Batman, right? Like where it's like, it's like Picard's like Batman. Yeah. In this episode, where it's like, I don't kill. Like, Batman doesn't shoot people, but Batman will, like, let you fall. And so there's a, there's, I don't know, there's like that, that element of it is interesting to me. The, the, when Picard's morals are tested in this very small microcosm. Yeah. Is what makes the episode really interesting to me. Um, and also it's just like a, it's just a, a great romp and, uh, uh, 
I don't think that there is a funnier concept that I've heard of a robot wanting to learn small talk. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about Batman just in, in terms of those geek sort of questions or arguments you have. And I always wonder what the moral threshold is for Batman. Like you mentioned, you know, death through inaction is maybe not his fault. Like it, gravity didn't kill his parents. But I always wonder why Batman doesn't use drugs like knockout drugs he's totally fine putting a thug in the hospital possibly crippling him for life but why doesn't he just like you know use a blow dart you know or something like that or like gas and just knock everybody I mean, out you know, you know it's tricky i mean i've been i've been rereading um glenn weldon's book the cape crusade which mm. came out in 2016 which is really excellent glenn weldon's a great commentator i don't know glenn um i just think that he's really talented and mm. um yeah the cape crusade is like this like really excellent um, walk through the entire history of Batman. And I got to say that I think that Batman might have used poison um, in his early days because he also used guns. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. But but yeah, in terms of our, our contemporary, I mean, didn't Adam West Batman use some knockout gas every once in a while? Maybe. It, it feels like there's this ickiness, like, that, you know, taking away somebody's agency. Uh, it's a cowboy thing. Like if you give them a stand up, you know, chance to to knock you out, that's fine. But somehow... Uh, just putting them to sleep and doing who knows what with them is like, that's not okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a good point. I think that what I like about, I do think that we, with Picard and Kirk and all the, all the Star Trek captains really is they are all kind of like Batman though, in that way. Right. Like they have right. like these like really strict policies, even like in Star Trek 09, right. Like with Chris Pines, Kirk being talking to, you know, Eric Bana and being like, well, well, We'll tow you out of this vortex, and you know, yeah, and yeah. Eric Bana is just kind of like, no, and <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, right, screw you, yeah. um, you know. So it's like it, 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 it has that same. They're not Bond, you know what I mean? The Star yeah, Trek captains yeah. are not Bond. They're more, they're more Batman. They're more Sherlock Holmes. Like they want to give the bad guy a chance. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like, it's not like Kirk was. I, I think even in the Wrath of Khan, there's like a, there's like a, uh, you know, we're going to beam the survivors of the Reliant yeah, yeah. off of the Reliant. You know what I mean? Like, and even in the, the, the genesis of that pun intended space seed, you know, Kirk, you know, Khan poisons the crew <laughs> and Kirk has to beat the crap out of him with a piece of styrofoam. Right. You know, and they're like, ah, this guy's all right. Let's just leave him on this planet. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, it's 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 like Adam West's Batman hoping that the Riddler will reform. <laughs> yeah. Once. Right. You know, so yeah. I mean, what I like about Starship Mine is that it walks that line of like weird realism, which I think predicts sort of where Star Trek is now and where yeah. it went after that, where it's like when they're really when it's when it comes down to the wire, Picard becomes more like Kirk when Kirk is stranded in the original series. Yeah. Right. Uh, where like, you know, Kirk's all about, I won't kill him in like arena. Right. Yeah. But then in like the gamesters of Triskelion, Kirk's just like in an arena with other aliens. He's like, I'm going to stab this guy. Right now. Yeah. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, I think there's something about that where what I like about it in Starship mine is that Patrick Stewart, you can see him play it in this really smart way. When he when that one dude gets hit by the Baryon sweep, and it's like, ah! yeah, they give him a yeah, that's a great moment. And Picard just stands there and is like, ah, you know, he's oh. kind of like, Fuck, I had to I had to kill that guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you 
Well, we are talking the TNG episode Starship Mine, the 18th episode of the sixth season of TNG. It first aired on March 29th, 1993, and it was written, of course, by Morgan Gendel, who we've talked about previously on the show. He is, of course, the Hugo Award-winning co-writer of the TNG episode The Inner Light. He also co-wrote the DS9 episodes The Passenger and Armageddon Game. He was also a writer, co-executive producer, and executive story editor on Law & Order, a writer and executive producer on the series VIP. He co-produced and wrote for the series The 100 and was an executive producer on the Dresden Files series, along with Trek alums Hans Beamler and Robert Hewitt-Wolf. The episode was directed by Cliff Bull, who we've talked about on the show previously, of course. He directed 42 episodes of post-TOS pre-discovery Trek. The Bolian race was named for him, and he passed away in 2014. The in-universe date for this episode is Stardate 46682.4, and your assignment, Ryan, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Starship Mine. Die hard on the Enterprise. I don't even need 25 words. <laughs> yeah, get it done. Get um, it done five. I, or, or, may, yeah, or, may, or maybe like die hard on the Enterprise, data becomes annoying. <laughs> <laughs> we we want to leave data behind, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, data becomes the colleague that everyone hates. <laughs> uh, here's some interesting facts from our memory banks about this episode. Morgan Gendel, the episode's writer, named his first TNG episode The Inner Light after the Beatles song, and he had planned to keep the streak going by naming this episode Revolution, but there was already a TNG episode named Evolution from the show's third season, so Starship Mine was chosen instead. And of course, this episode is often thought of as Die Hard on the Enterprise. I've read, I think in uh, Captain's Logs by Edward Gross and Mark Altman, that he initially downplayed the connection to Die Hard on, on uh, the Enterprise. But he did say in uh, at Phoenix Comic Con in 2011 that, yeah, I mean, the pitch is Die Hard on the Enterprise. Late in the process of producing the episode, uh, Ronald D. Moore was brought in to do a rewrite in the episode to give it more of an action feel. And time was short for many aspects of this episode. Uh, the standard lighting setups couldn't be used because the normally bright lit ship was powered down. And budget restrictions meant that extras couldn't be used, which worked great for a deserted enterprise. But it meant that the senior staff were present at a reception for just them and Hutch, I guess. It was basically just them there, kind of a small party. Kelsey's weapon in the episode is the prop that was used for the rare Varian T disruptor, which we previously discussed on our episode about the most toys. Uh, No confirmation on whether the gun is a Varian T disruptor, but they get even more rare, presumably, when Kelsey's ship explodes during the episode's finale. Trilithium resin is the MacGuffin in this episode. It appears again as a dangerous and volatile compound in the Star Trek film Generations. And I was going to ask you about Captain Picard doing the Vulcan nerve pinch in this episode, which is never confirmed, but I think Fanon holds that uh, maybe he learned that trick when he mind-melded with Sarek. Is that what you uh, think is going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, I mean, I think that you could argue that it's, well, look, I have a lot of theories about what Picard knows about Vulcans, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I do think, though, I wonder where you got the detail about um, revolution. Because I actually, the first time I interviewed Morgan in 2010, I feel like is, I'm like, did I break that story? I may have. Oh. Uh, I wonder where that came from. Because I remember talking to him. Because the whole reason I'm friends with him is because we both like the Beatles. Oh, yeah, really? Me too. I talked to him at uh, New York Comic Con uh, a long time ago, 10 years ago, yeah. about the George Harrison connection with the Inner Light. Um, as far as what he told me, literally yesterday on the phone, he never downplayed the diehard aspect. Okay. But that Michael Pillar 
was opposed to it yes, initially. Yes, he was. And so if there was any downplaying that it might have been because of that is my my um, guess. That's Picard doing the nerve pinch, I think that you could argue that it's debatable, but as a kid, I remember recognizing it as the, as the nerve pinch. Yeah, yeah, me too, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and on top of that, when if you fast forward to uh, um, Vulcan Hello, Discovery season one, episode one. Right. Michael Burnham doing it on Captain Giorgio. Sure. I mean, what do Michael Burnham and Picard have in common is uh, they've both mind melted with Sarah. Yeah, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like, and you know, data had done it previously in unification. Right. And we saw um, Sutra mind meld with Dr. Girardi in the uh, Star Trek Picard finale. Um, that's true. So I don't know. And it, it, Kirk always talked to Spock about having to learn the nerve pinch. So I just always inferred, yes, that it's Picard became more, even more Vulcan like <laughs> after his mind meld with Sarek and with Spock. Cause it, it, this is, is this post unification? Yes, it is. Yeah. So it's post unification. So he's mind melded with Spock too. Yeah. Um, and we've seen data do the nerve pinch. So yeah, I, I feel like it's got a, yeah, Picard has got – he's part Sarek at this point Yeah, in the series. Yeah. Uh, I like that he picks up new skills whenever Morgan Gendel writes him too. Like Melinda Snodgrass like putting horses in her episodes and Morgan Gendel has Picard, you know, learning the flute and, uh, you know, learning the joys of a family in uh, the inner light. And now he's uh, – he can. He's apparently has the Vulcan nerve pinch from his association I like that with learning Sarah. the joys of a family is a skill. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he has to. This episode is generally well liked by the people that worked on it. Patrick Stewart joked that he enjoyed being out of uniform without the other boring crew members. And Morgan Gendel did like the episode, saying, "Quote: The first time I saw it, I wasn't sure how well it worked, but when I went back to watch it a second time, I really liked it, and I thought it was true to what I was trying to do." Yeah, I think that like from what I gather from like, you know, the kind of unofficial research here of talking to Morgan about it is that I got the sense that Pillar was opposed to it during the pitching process, mm. but that once it got going was kind of like, you, the other thing is that you mentioned the uncredited rewrite from Ron Moore. It was also Jerry Taylor, um, mm. who of course was, um, you know, co-creator of Voyager and also, you know, a huge writer on TNG. Yeah. But, um, from what I gather from Morgan is that the humor subplot, which again, I feel like we're not talking about enough. We'll get the humor <laughs> subplot is, uh, is data, you know, learning small talk, um, was entirely sort of conceived by Ron Moore. Okay. Um, and <laughs> I think that you can kind of see that, you know what I mean? Is that I think that, you know, if, I think that Ron Moore is one of those, you know, you can't really understand the next generation and, Deep Space Nine, you know, post 1990 without him. Yeah. And I think that it, his stamp is in here and Morgan would, would cop to that, sure. that more sort of like infused it with that. And I think that even the joke sort of that, um, there's that great joke in the episode where you kind of think that the, everybody thinks Picard's lying about the saddle. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to get at, which is actually like a really funny joke. And then at the end of the episode, nobody can find the saddle. Right. <laughs> it's like, so it's like, there's this running joke that it wasn't real. Yeah. So then it's like this, like Worf is like Worf finds, finds it or whatever. And so Picard is sort of exonerated from like this lie. Yeah. Um, of course they didn't, wouldn't have thought that he was totally lying because he came back to the ship, but, um, it's still like a, it's a, it's a funny bit. Yeah. And I think that, um, Moore's, uh, influence is, is felt there. <laughs> 
Uh, let's talk about some of the guest stars in the episode. David Spielberg plays the ill-fated Commander Hutchinson. Spielberg made his film debut in Paul Newman's The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds, and he played Ted in the Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice TV series. He'd go on to appear in a number of films and many guest appearances on TV shows of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and he passed away at the age of 77 in 2016. Marie Marshall appears as Kelsey. Marshall doesn't have many credits to her name, but she had several recurring roles on 90s TV series and she was a series regular on the ABC sitcom Billy, playing the wife of series star Billy Connolly's character. And of course, Tim Russ makes his debut in the franchise as Devor in this episode. He would, of course, go on to play Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, but not before playing Takar on an episode of DS9 and the ops officer of the Enterprise B in Generations. Russ has the distinction of sharing the screen with four Star Trek captains, Kirk, Picard, Sisko, and Janeway, an honor that he shares with Jonathan Frakes. But Frakes wasn't in Spaceballs, though, was he? <laughs> Russ has that over him. And Glenn Morshower plays Orton in the episode. Morshower also appeared in Star Trek Generations as the navigator of the Enterprise B. He's also appeared previously on TNG as Ensign Burke and appeared on an episode of Voyager and Enterprise as well. And he's one of them. Those actors that I call those guys, you know, you see a guy and you go, oh, I know that guy. Uh, he's probably best known for the role of Secret Service agent Aaron Pierce, which he played for seven seasons on the Fox series 24. Well, didn't Tuvok share the the the, uh, the uh, screen with uh, Sulu, Captain Sulu as well? Ooh, that you know what? That's true. So in flashback, let's, yeah, yeah, let's make that five, I guess, uh, unless they're yeah, that's a unless lot. they're just counting uh, Cisco as commander uh, in that episode because it was an early DS9 episode. But yeah, I'd say it's five. Interestingly enough, the one guest star I wanted to talk about was one that you did not mention, which is Patricia Tallman. Oh, yes. Who uh, I don't remember the character's name, but she's the other she's the other mercenary who discovers Picard. Yes. And Patricia Tallman is interesting because i just been doing research for this interview is that i realized that she was in another that same episode of ds9 that you mentioned mm -hmm. she was in with tim russ because she was a stunt double okay um so she was like patricia tallman's fascinating actress right because yes. she's a stunt double on tng and ds9 and voyager i think enterprise yeah uh, but uh and in generations she was gates mcfadden's stunt double yeah um, but she was uh, Nana Visser's stunt double on DS9. So she's in that same, you know, episode with Tim Russ. But she was also on Babylon 5 the entire time that she was a, as a major character, Lita Alexander, a telepath. Right, right. The entire time that she was on uh, uh, being a stunt double for uh, Star Trek. Yeah. And so she's just a fat, her career is sort of fascinating because um, because of that fact. And, and I, it makes me sort of laugh to see her in that episode because it's like, <laughs> Not the greatest role, not yeah, the greatest well, makeup, but yeah. if anybody should have been fighting Picard at the end, it should have been her. Right. Because she was because she was a trained stunt actress and like choreographed a lot of those fights for uh TNG and DS9. Yeah. Um so that's just I don't know, she's just sort of like a, that that's like the one Easter egg for me. And I was a huge Babylon Five fan um when it was airing and I still am. Yeah. Uh, and so like, she's, she's the one that I kind of, and she's like in a million TNG episodes. Yeah, she's a long, long uh, career with a TNG. A lot of them. And she's like in track. generations, like yeah. cr when the ship is crashing. like <laughs> Yeah. If this is Die Hard, then uh, Kelsey is uh, is um, Alan Rickman's character. She would be the Alexander Gudinov. She should be the heavy. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. 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 Picard just keeps his shoes on, unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm always fascinated by the 
the other pieces of media or or even historical events that inspire Trek episodes. Um, I actually have another podcast called Backtrekking, where we examine that phenomenon, uh, Star Trek drawing on other sources. And Star Trek Mine was the first episode that we talked about on that show and its similarities to Die Hard. Do you think it's inevitable with a series like Star Trek or any long running show uh, where you've got like an unfamiliar genre world and you've got seven years to fill that you're eventually going to look for homage or pastiche to fill out your episode list? I think it's just true of all open-ended science fiction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I think that it's like something that I thought was interesting that Akiva Goldsman said about Picard and discovery and how they're so different than the Trek shows that came before is that those genres or subgenres, I guess, yeah. are something fixed, you know, Picard being a um, science fiction drama show and discovery being a science fiction action show. But within the original series and, next generation and even in ds9 and voyager and enterprise you have you know there's a freaking western in enterprise with real horses by the way right yeah um, yeah you know but i think that i think it just comes with the territory of the way that science fiction is not a genre i guess hmm. is what i'm trying to say and i i i think that we have to talk about it as a genre because other people do yeah and because keywords matter and you have to agree on certain language terms but Strictly speaking, science fiction is not a genre. It's a setting. Mm -hmm. And in Star Trek, it really is just a setting. Mm -hmm. um, I was rereading the making of Star Trek recently that was published in 1968 that's about you know the making of Star Trek. And something that you learn really is that Roddenberry's whole goal was to minimize the world building and just not have you worry about it at all. Hmm. So you could deal with the characters. And this is like, you know, okay, what? who cares, Ryan? Well, no one had done that ever with televised science fiction at the time, right? There was no regular television show with recurring characters set in the science fiction genre for adults ever. Yeah. It was all anthology. It was Twilight Zone. It was in Lost in Space was for families. It also came out in 1965. It was right before. Doctor Who came out in 1963. That was aimed at kids. Yeah. Um, so you never so having an ongoing series with regular recurring characters is the first innovation that Star Trek created. Yeah. So yeah, I think that you inevitably had to like, just say, okay, well, what other genres can we mine? And I think in the original series, that's pretty evident. Um, you know, I was, you know, with, uh, the submarine films, you know, from balance of terror sure. or whatever. Yeah. But, um, you know, Deep Space Nine had a Bond episode. Well, or, yeah, very you know self-consciously, I mean? yeah. Uh, my, my favorite uh, original series episode is a piece of the action. And I probably experienced <laughs> that before I experienced real mobster movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think in some ways, Star Trek gives you, when it does it right, it gives you an ideal version of those things. Sure. In a bite-sized form. You know, um, Patrick Stewart's not a bad Robin Hood. Yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. saying. I'm not. I don't. Data is not my favorite Sherlock Holmes, but uh, the you can probably tell me this off the top of your head. The actor who played Moriarty in the two Sherlock Holmes episodes, Ship in a Bottle and Elementary, uh, Elementary, My Dear Data, is my favorite Moriarty. Interesting. You know, so I think that like you can. I think that through through the homage and through the um, when Star Trek does a pastiche of a very obvious genre, mm -hmm. I think that sometimes it it can weirdly eclipse that um, in its pastiche. And I think the, that, I think the Moriarty from, from Elementary My Dear Data is the best example. Find me a better period-specific Moriarty. 
Not Andrew Scott from Sherlock. He's great. But a sure. period-specific period Moriarty? No. Yeah. He's the best. I, I think that I would agree with you both on uh, your statement about Moriarty and also about Trek's use of pastiche. And over Michael Pillar's objections, I do, I think, like it when Trek takes departures from being Trek now and again. And doing a Die Hard, I think, is a great idea. And once you get into it, it it's amazing how it's amazing the explicit comparisons that you can make and the way that you can turn this thing that you would never think of in comparison to Die Hard into that exact thing. Like if you just look at the elements that you've got that make Die Hard, Die Hard, you mentioned the shoes. It's too bad they couldn't find a way, <laughs> way to get his shoes off, but maybe that's a little too far. But just having like Picard knowing, you know, the ship better than the, the, the terrorist that he's fighting so he, he gets to crawl around and he's he's setting traps and he's taking them out one by one and he should have marked all the terrorist names on his arm with with the 24th century equivalent of a sharpie yeah i i agree with you but i will say what i think works about this episode is that it does actually stick to what we were talking about with batman earlier it sticks to the star trek ethics yeah so you so you, what you get to do is instead of instead of picard standing on the bridge with his full crew and being like, we're not going to, you know, let this planet die or this freighter run into this other thing. Yeah. If you actually put those morals to the test in the moment when it is just him. Interesting. And it is just the ship. And so I think that it actually, and, I, and again, I think that some of this is in the writing, but I think some of it is just in the performance. Yeah. And I think that one scene at the beginning, again, that we talked about um, with the Tim Russ character, you're, uh, you're a Starfleet, you won't kill me. Yeah. Are you sure? Picard <laughs> is bluffing. Yeah. You yeah. know, and he, I, and he, I, it seems you're right. You know what I mean? And he, you know, he, he renders that guy unconscious twice, yeah. you know, with the nerve pinch and then with the hypospray. So, but it's like, I think that it's interesting because it does show you, it's like, well, this philosophy only works so far, mm. right? Like it'll only take them so far, but when it comes down to it, Picard, like Kirk is, he's trained to kill. He'll do it. Yeah. Like if necessary, yeah. he'll do it. And I think that that, and I don't think really there's a, another episode of the next generation that really shows you that. And even in first contact, you get away with it because Picard's like enraged and is on this Ahab quest to kill the Borg. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, whatever Picard's not himself, it's him murdering yeah. that poor Ensign Lynch in the hallway. Is, <laughs> yeah. Because Picard's having a bad day Yeah, and he needs to take a nap, you know? Um, but in this episode, it's like Picard is completely in control and he's totally himself. And he's just like, this is my ship. And these guys are going to rip it off and I'm going to stop them. And I'm going to kill him if I have to. Yeah. And it's just like, and he does it almost with a look and with his eyes where he's just kind of like, and it starts the episode. He definitely doesn't kill Tim Ross. Moves on. Um, the actor you mentioned, that guy, gets hit by the variant sweep. Picard kind of nods. By the end of it, Kelsey's uh, you know little device comes off the trilithium container. Yeah, you know he's on, he's on on the horn with Data, or she won't get far. It's like he's <laughs> it's almost like a Connery pun. Yeah, it's his one. End. Yeah, his one one. Where he's like, I don't think she'll get far. Yeah. you know, it's not it's not a Connery pun, but it feels like the you know he got the point. Yeah. You right, know, yeah, like, it yeah. feels like, <laughs> like it feels like his like booyah. Yeah. Um, and then the, then it explodes. And then, you know, the next thing, you know, he's, he's back in sick, sick bay and like, you know, everything's fine. He's like, ah, I, it's like, well, what did you do on your holiday card? And he's like, ah, I kill all these terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like, but I mean, if you fast forward to discovery, people's, you know, criticisms of discovery was it's too violent or whatever. 
And I don't think that those criticisms are overwhelmingly the majority, but that criticism exists, existed, existed in the first season of Picard too, as it was airing is I think that those shows are a lot like Starship Mine insofar as they're like, okay, right. But what if Starfleet doesn't have the option of being Starfleet? Mm -hmm. What if they're not allowed to be Starfleet? And even in the Vulcan Hello, which has this interesting little connection that we talked about, because a human who is mind melded with Sarek, you know, uses the nerve pinch, Picard uses the nerve pinch, a pacifist Vulcan gesture mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. but this the episodes deal with the same thing Giorgio is like starfleet doesn't fire first burnham's like you know well we gotta kick these guys asses or they're gonna kill us picard's the same way he starts the episode saying you know i probably won't kill you because i am starfleet by the end of the episode he's like you know what i'm gonna kill all these people yeah. because i am starfleet and i don't have a choice yeah otherwise something bad is going to happen so i think that that earning the the desperation it's not as hardcore as Discovery, but the desperation is there. Oh, sure, for sure. Part. And I think that that is interesting because I think that testing the Star Trek ideology is where... You know, notice that none of these characters were Starfleet who were ripping off the Enterprise, but some of them were human. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I imagine, had Roddenberry been alive when this episode was being produced, wow. I imagine he may have objected to that. Yeah. Just as he ad- objected to... Um, you know, the Enterprise crew members conspiring uh, to assassinate uh, the Klingon chancellor in the undiscovered country. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I but I think that I think that when Star Trek tests its moral high minded philosophy, in this case, through a diehard plot device. Yeah. But I think it actually still gets to be Star Trek, even though it um, is using another genre to make a different point. Yeah. And they were committed to that that darkness and that testing as well. I mean, it would be a little, it would strain credulity a little bit, but when we get to the end of the episode, we could just see that Picard has taken these guys out and then, you know, piled their bodies in 10 forward, you know, awaiting, uh, beaming them off to jail or whatever. But like you said, he's put in that position where I really wish it didn't have to go this way, but what am I going to do? Like, I can't let them get away and hurt so many more people with this, this trilithium resin. So they, they definitely wanted to put, Picard in that situation and we see we see the way that he deals with it I also just think it's important that they there was so much in it was a season five you know what I mean there's so much of Picard not being an action hero mm-hmm. and then but by the time you get to the films well it's a yeah total inversion it's a different, it's a different story <laughs> yeah. right but I think that it was important I remember even as a kid it being like important that because Picard is so much older in appearance than Kirk mm-hmm I think that it's important that he does kind of kick some ass in that episode sure. and that you do sort of are like, oh, yeah, this guy, like if it is just him and the ship, he's going to become the entire crew, essentially. Like he goes to Worf's quarters, right? Yes. To get the <laughs> yes. bow and arrow. So it's like he becomes his entire, he becomes everyone. And so you're like, oh, yeah, he is the best person for this job. And the reason why is what we're witnessing. Yeah, he's got all those skills. Yeah. Is that he has all those skills. I think that's something that's cool that like, Voyager did with Janeway and DS9 did with Cisco and um, to a lesser extent Discovery has done with its with Pike or whatever but like that the captain can do it all they can actually do all of these things yeah that their other crew members can do if necessary yeah um, and obviously we knew that about Kirk um, but with Picard there was so many seasons of like you're not supposed to go on the away team and you know <laughs> yeah. you've got you've got an artificial heart you know, yeah. and all this stuff. So I think it was nice just to see him that way. Yeah. I also like, just before we talk about comedy, I also like the fact that 
in sort of condensing this episode from, you know, a two hour diehard to like a 45 minute episode, you see overlap like Picard is both. Uh, the John McClane, but he's also kind of the Bill Clay character in this as well, because he takes on this persona of Mott the Barber to sort of infiltrate uh, the the terrorists when he's captured and, and get more information, which is uh, kind of what Alan Rickman's uh, Hans Gruber does in Die Hard. Yeah, I mean, I think that what I love about that that joke is that it just extends the idea that the Enterprise has a barber who's bald and that Picard <laughs> is also bald. Yeah. So to me, it's like a, it's just a, if you've watched, it, it rewards you if you've been watching the show and yeah. you know who Mott is. <laughs> um, and I, th- I, I just think it's just a great joke. Yeah. I think it's just a great joke. It just works really well. If you've never seen Star Trek, it's funny because Picard is then pretending to be a bald barber <laughs> and that in your mind, you, he's made the, like, for my wife, who's never seen the episode, who watched it with me the other day, you know, she's like, it's it's a funny joke because it's Picard being bald, making up a joke about being a barber. Yeah. If you've seen Star Trek, it rewards you with this knowledge of this other character, you know, who <laughs> is also bald, who is a barber, who like doesn't appear to do much, um, you know, uh, other than chat. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think it's a, I think it's one of those just, holy, it's a moment where you see the next generation really confident. In its oh yeah, in in its entire um, uh, attitude yeah, um, it feels very confident. It feels like a complete world. Yeah, and by season six, they yeah, the world was totally rock solid at that point. Uh, this episode is is very funny uh, until it's not, <laughs> and maybe that's part of the sort of two facets of what they're trying to do in this episode coming together. But yeah, the first the first uh, half of the episode is is very funny. Um, and of course, Data, you know, Brent Spiner just runs away with this episode and puts on a comedy clinic when he's trying out his small talk subroutines. I love the idea that they this this is introduced early in the episode um, in that really subtle kind of underplayed elevator scene where <laughs> Data's just it's been quite a day. <laughs> Picard is like, uh, yeah, yeah, what, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, and we introduce yeah. we introduce this element, but then we find this perfect situation later where we've got a chatterbox, a hutch, and they're able to sort of you know face the uh, unstoppable force against the immovable object. And if we didn't have the intervention of the terrorists, I wonder how that would have resolved. Yeah, I mean, I it's great. I think because it puts. I think it's good. It works for the episode because it puts you at ease. Yeah, you think it might. Yeah, yeah. It kind of yeah. make, makes you think it might actually be kind of a light episode. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you hadn't read the description in TV Guide or had seen the trailer from the previous week or whatever, you might just be like, oh, OK. And I feel like at the time I, I remember I hadn't. I like I think that that was a joy of of um, watching Star Trek then is that you wouldn't necessarily sometimes I would really know. Right. Like I would have read the TV Guide or whatever and known what was coming or had seen the next time on Star Trek, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. But with that one, I feel like it was one that we stumbled across as a family and we're like we didn't really know what it was going to be about and i think that that structurally that that the humor does it a lot of uh, it a lot, does a lot of favors mm-hmm. because you know when the maintenance crew is coming on the bridge and picard sort of gets in the turbo lift that's the that's the teaser yeah the teaser isn't what's up with, i mean if this episode was made now yeah it would just open with people taking over a starship yeah yeah you yeah. know there, but i think that the, the patience of the episode is sort of it's just kind of a, a type of um, tv in. writing from another time yeah yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the, all the, everything that happens in the, in the first part, first act, um, the idea of Worf 
anticipating, you know, having to meet C Commander Hutch, asking to get out of the uh, reception. And then Jordy's like, oh, can I can I do it too? Hey, Dad, can I do this? And it's like, no, nope, it's too late. You should have thought of it before. I think that there's a lot of this in, and I don't think the next generation gets enough credit for this, is that the, the mix of tones um, within the same episode, like, you know, the first episode with the Borg, Q Who, starts off with this, like, slightly lighthearted scene where Ensign Gomez spills hot chocolate <laughs> yes, on the cars, yeah, yeah. and then he's, like, in the fake shuttlecraft with Q, and Q's sort of giving him grief about everything and then q is like i'm gonna join the crew like the borg aren't introduced to what like 20 minutes in yeah right like it, it's kind of <laughs> it, it, i think there's just something about that and i think that it's a carryover from the original series and i think I mean this as a compliment that even the darkest you know the darkest episode of star trek or the darkest star trek film yeah is never going to be as dark as the darkest episode of Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica, and it's never going to be as dark as, you know, Black Mirror or something. Yeah, right. You know, it's always going to, even in like, like, what's the darkest Star Trek film? Nemesis. Maybe Star Trek Into Darkness, but mm. the title of that film might be helping it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's say it's Nemesis. That seems right. That that movie still has like, is front loaded with a lot of humor. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. And before in specific, even throughout is kind of humorous. And, you know, like, actually great great segue because like you can't have star trek nemesis without starship mine mm. you know in terms of just the picard as the action hero and as the sort of like you know going toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody yeah but yeah I'd, I'd say that that film is similar i mean that's that's a weird film it's definitely not my favorite um star trek film but i do um I do like elements of it i will say and i i wouldn't People keep saying they want like a young Picard to be played by James McAvoy. And I don't know if there was like a stargazer movie and hmm. it starred like Tom Hardy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That sounds kind of awesome to me. It does sound kind of cool. Like think I... about it. Like they could just, <laughs> but think about it. It would like look like the wrath of Khan yeah. because it was those uniforms and those sets. Yeah. And you could just have Tom Hardy as Picard on the stargazer. Do the Picard maneuver. Yeah. I I, you could, I wouldn't have to be any of the stuff we already know. It could be other stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, in theory, it would, it's the, in theory, it's the Cardassian Wars, right? I wrote a piece about this for Denna Geek a couple months ago about how, like, that's the biggest era that's unexplored. Okay, it's interesting. Era in between TOS uh, films yeah. and beginning of the next generation. Like, we yeah. really don't have a good sense of what happened in there. Kind of TNG's discovery era. Yeah, but it's like six decades well, yeah, this is a little earlier, yeah. <laughs> but, but but yes, but it's it's strange because it is so long and it is like this interesting sort of like period where the technology doesn't seem to change as much. Right. right? And like, you know, and that seems absurd. But then you think about now about how like how long has it been since we've built a new space shuttle since the 80s? Yeah, that's you know? true. And that's so true. it's like I feel like that that era of in between the TOS films and TNG is like, why did the Federation kind of like stagnate a little bit? Was it the Cardassian Wars? Was it something else? Yeah. You know, um, the Stargazer looks like it's basically the same tech that the Reliant had. There's yeah. like 60 years in there where they kind of were using the same kind of spaceships. Yeah. Um, I don't know. All that stuff is really interesting to me. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but, um, <laughs> um <laughs> but they can change yeah. uniforms like every week. So who, who knows? But not then, not then from 2285, the Rathacon through 
right before the next generation. They're for like 40, 50 years. Yeah. They're wearing that, the, the monster maroon, the red, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Red Nick Meyer uniforms. Yeah. You know, and I think that's just so interesting because like everything else. Yeah. Like, you know, they change uniforms like six times and <laughs> you know, the 2250s or whatever that, you know, like forget it in the next generation era. Like God. <laughs> I was just writing about this the other day with lower decks where you're like, okay, so they had yeah. first contact uniforms. Now they're going to have the lower decks uniforms, but then five years later, they're going to have the Picard flashback uniforms. Um, yeah. That's why they have to do that era so they could retcon another 10 costume changes uh, into it. Well, my th- well, I, I, don't, I think that they shouldn't do it because I think that that would make it like a period piece and that would be really cool. Yeah. But, um, but my theory about that, and again, I don't, think, I don't think this is mine. I think this is out there. But because some point time travel became so prominent <laughs> that Starfleet was like, let's just change the uniform every five years. Right. That way, if someone is time traveling <laughs> and they're lazy... We will immediately know something is up. <laughs> that's that's an amazing theory, and it's probably the best commercial I can think of for Luke Skywalker can't read. So uh, people should definitely check that out. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, we've got so much more that we can talk about. We'll have to have you back. But uh, I, there's a couple of questions I always ask guests on the show. Uh, first of all would be, uh, in a situation of my space dad can beat up your space dad, who's your favorite captain and why? I have to say that my favorite captain is right now Cisco. And the reason why is because he's the only parent. Yeah. Um, and I am a parent and I've been a parent for three years and he's the captain I relate to the most now because he's a parent. Um, when I was younger, I, well, Kirk's a parent as well but he's a bad parent. Um, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't, so Kirk is one of those, like, I think that when I was a kid, it was definitely Kirk. Um, Picard is right there. Um, I also really, really like Pike because I like Anson Mount so much. Yeah. So I'm really into Anson Mount and I really am into his, um, the way that he plays Pike. Yeah. Um, but I like Cisco because he's, he feel he's the most relatable and most realistic. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department cool. on the ship do you work in? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I guess I work in command, sure. but like lower because I don't really know anything about the other. Um, I'm not good with science or engineering, yeah. but I think that I'm good at organizing things. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I would probably be good at what Hutch does. Okay, um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> in Starship Mine, I yeah. think that if, as long as the small talk could be about about science fiction, yeah, um, I could organize receptions on the Enterprise and yeah. uh, maybe program the holodeck. Um, okay, but the okay. but the writing part of it, not the engineering. Yeah. I think a lot of the organizational stuff would probably go to command uh, cadets and ensigns. Now that we've gotten rid of the um, the secretary, uh, you know, young yeomans of the original series, yeah, like a lot of that but, clipboard stuff would be uh, young uh, command uh, track. Yeah, people. I feel like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think those jobs are terrible because you wouldn't necessarily get beamed down and blown up. Right. You, <laughs> Just pushing papers. You, yeah. <laughs> you might get to do cool stuff. Like you might get to be like, oh, remember when we had the Klingon Chancellor? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who planned that party? Assisting diplomatic functions. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I don't know. <laughs> Pretty cool. 
Well, Anson Brett, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at Ryan C. Britt, uh, at, uh, that's Twitter, and they can also find me at Ryan Britt Writer. Uh, that's my website. But um, every day I write something for Inverse.com about Star Trek or Star Wars. Sure. Um, every week I write something for Den of Geek about Star Trek. Um, and I will be doing a ton of interviews for Sci-Fi Wire and Inverse about uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. Great. Well, people can look for that. Uh, I know that you're working on the book that you mentioned, Spock Rocks. And are you working on a novel as well? Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm working on a couple novels. Um oh that are probably going to be a series now. So Spock rocks might become Spock lives. We'll have to see okay. what um, my agent says in the next couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> the novels are, I was doing a novel called Starship Dalloway, which was about um, a uh, simulacrums of uh, deceased writers in the future. Mm. Um, but that may turn into a series because now I'm, I've sort of started working on a companion piece called Starship Baskerville, which okay. would be a space opera Sherlock Holmes, uh, which has not actually been done, believe it or not. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes in space is not, well, not in, not in a novel anyway, in short right. stories. Yes. Well, that sounds great. Uh, thanks again for joining me. No problem. Thanks, Aaron. It's a pleasure. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Shut up! Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You, go f*** yourself. <laughs>